Well, welcome to the Hills. All of you watching online around the world and all of you across the Metroplex in person at our three campuses in Keller, West Fort Worth, and North Richmond Hills. As you know, this past week was very important because most of our school districts opened classes again, and that meant there was much weeping and much rejoicing <laughs> with students and with parents. And Jamie and I are past the stage of sending kids to school, but this is still an important time for me because starting school encourages me with the thought that two things I love are around the corner. One is real football games, and the other is fall weather, okay? Because we just tell the truth, it has been a terrible summer. It has been too stinking hot. And I think we need to talk to God about it, seriously. So, bow your head. So God, there is no reason for this prayer to be fancy or complicated. We're going to tell you what we want. It is too hot, and it's been too dry, and your good creation is suffering. So God, please send some cooler weather and send some rain. Bless us and bless your creation in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. amen. So if you are a guest, you hear a lot about our church's vision. We are asking for nations and generations, and one part of that vision is within five years, to know for certain that we are a multi-ethnic church. That means that at least 20% of our membership is not of the dominant ethnicity. And so last year, we did a survey to see where do we stand on that uh, goal, and we got some great feedback. We learned that we are a remarkably diverse and colorful church. But the way the survey was worded, we didn't get all the information exactly like we wanted. So we're going to try again. You'll notice there's a QR code. You can take a picture of it right now. And we want to try to discern where we stand as uh, an ethnic or a multi-ethnic church. Uh, now, this is only for members. If you're a guest, you don't need to fill out this survey. Only one person per family. And you are going to get an email this afternoon. Uh, about this, and it only takes two to three minutes to fill it out. So I hope you will do that and bless us. Revelation 7 says that around the throne of Jesus, every tongue and tribe and nation are gathered and praising his name. We believe one of the ministries of the church is to give the world a taste of heaven, of the kingdom that's coming. Now, it just so happens that God has put our church in a stunningly diverse, colorful county. So we think our church should look like our city and that every tongue and tribe and nation is welcome here. And so our goal is to give our city and our county a taste of the future. So that's what we're praying for and your cooperation will really help us. So thank you for that. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Bible does not teach that it is bad to be rich. It teaches that most people are bad at being rich. It is not easy to be good and rich, but it is possible. But it demands intention. You're not going to just drift there. It demands a certain perspective that we'll talk about in a moment. And maybe most of all, if you want to be good and rich, it demands a humble willingness to submit 
to clear, bold, biblical teaching. That's where I come in. I am under orders as a pastor of the word to teach my flock how to be good and rich. Now, you might want to know that I do not know what a single member of our church gives to our church or any other worthy cause. I never have. You can know that when I talk to you, not a single thing I say is filtered through the lens of knowing what you do with your money because I don't know. My calling from God is not to gather dollars. It is to make disciples. And when you're making disciples in a culture that is as rich as any that has ever existed, you must teach on how to be good and rich. So that's why we're spending the month of August in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. That's why we're reading these verses out loud each week, because when we say them out loud, it helps to keep them in our memory banks. So we're going to do that now on every campus and online. Everyone stand up. Now, church, as we read these words, I want you to hear them as the Spirit of God talking right now to you. So let's read together. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. May we receive the word of God. Have a seat, please. And so you can tell that Paul is writing as a pastor who cares about these people. He doesn't care about gathering dollars. He wants his people to take hold of life that is truly life. And he knows to live a really blessed life, you must live a life that blesses others. Did you know that generosity is literally good for you? Not just spiritually, I mean even physically. Uh, the School of Medicine at Stony Brook University in 2015 released a study that said that generosity reduces blood pressure as effectively as medicine or exercise. And then in New Republic uh, magazine, there was a study that said that when people are generous, it releases chemicals in their body like uh, dopamine and endorphins and oxytoxins that literally make people feel better. Another study in U.S. News reported that people that are generous with their time that volunteer to help other people in hard situations, those volunteers have a 63% lower mortality rate. And then the University of Louisville revealed a study that said that our money that we hold, our cash, 
that 13% of our coins and 42% of our paper money contain disease-producing organisms. <laughs> so perhaps I should have titled this series, Be Generous or You Will Die. <laughs> but we don't embrace generosity because of what we fear. We do so because of who we follow. Because our rabbi was remarkably generous. Now granted, I am not aware of a single time that Jesus ever gave anybody money. Nor am I aware of a single time that he ever told anybody that more money was the answer to their problems. But Jesus always responded to legitimate needs in concrete ways. Uh, Peter, who lived almost every day of Jesus' three years of public ministry right beside him, summed up the life of Jesus in one sentence in Acts 10. You know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That Jesus was a do-gooder. Notice, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and this gave him power. And then, what did Jesus do with this power? He was anointed with power so that he could anoint other people with blessing. This is why you want to live a spirit-filled life. This is why you want to be surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit, because to take hold of the life that is truly life, you are pouring out blessing on somebody else's life. This is how Jesus lived. And it wasn't just his duty, it was his delight. And by the way, he preached what he practiced. So Paul is meeting with the elders in Ephesus, the church that Timothy's currently pastoring. The very last thing he told them about Jesus was this. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you want to take hold of real life? Then learn from Jesus to use the power the Holy Spirit gives you to pour out blessing on other people. By the way, this is why Jesus never discouraged anybody from being generous, whether they were rich or poor. When he saw that widow in the temple with just two coins left, give them to the things of God, he did not try to stop her. When that woman that was so desperate for money, she sold her body to men who cared nothing about her, brought some perfume to pour on Jesus, he didn't say, oh, no, no, you need it more than I do. When Mary took her life savings, a jar of nard, and poured it out on Jesus' head, he didn't say, stop, Mary, think about the future. Jesus never stopped anybody from being radically generous. Because Jesus wants everybody to take hold of the life that is truly life. See, so here's the thing. When Jesus leads, generosity follows if you're following Jesus, that does, doesn't mean that you like Jesus. It means you're trying to be 
like Jesus. And if you're trying to be like Jesus, you are becoming increasingly a generous person. We're all born takers. We start to become born again givers. We all have hearts of Velcro. Our hearts start to become Teflon. And what happens is that we start becoming people that want to pour when we used to be people that wanted to store. Now, granted, most people, whether they follow Jesus or not, can have moments of generosity. Almost anybody can have a moment where they're caught up in an emotional pill or they have a guilty conscience, and they can just randomly do something that's kind to somebody else. But when Jesus leads, generosity is who you always are, not what you occasionally do. Let me show you, for example, what we know about the very first community of people that followed Jesus and called themselves a church. It's in Acts chapter 2. And here's what it says, that they were together and shared everything. They would sell their land and the things they own and then divide the money and give it to anyone who needed it. Why did they start doing that? Who taught them to do that? You see, they're just following Jesus, and it just was a, a normal, natural thing for them to do, to become suddenly and radically generous. Now, discipleship doesn't mean you take a vow of poverty. In fact, I would say becoming poor is not a very good way to help the poor. What discipleship does expect is that you make a commitment to generosity. In fact, I've been telling you each week, I'm going to give you a principle on how to be good and rich. Week one, if you want to be good and rich, you've got to be humble about your wealth. Week two, if you want to be good and rich, you've got to trust God more than your wealth. Here's week three. If you want to be good and rich, you must bless others with your wealth. And yet here's the strange irony. All the research shows that the more one accumulates wealth, the less one tends to demonstrate generosity. The poor are much more generous than people of means. Now, I'm not saying the rich don't give more actual money. I'm saying in terms of percentage of their wealth, poor people are much more radically generous than rich people. What happens to the heart when we start to accumulate wealth? For some reason, the heart tends to turn inward. Imagine you're standing at a window, clear glass, a busy street, and you can see people outside. What would happen if you put a sheet of silver on that window? It would become a mirror, and all you could see is yourself. And for some reason, it seems that the more we acquire, the less we desire to see other people, and the more we focus on what we can now do for ourselves. And that's why Paul knows that to combat this, pastors have to be bold and clear. 
He didn't say, Timothy, suggest. He didn't say, Timothy, bring it up now and then. He said, Timothy, command the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Remember I said in week one, it's commendable to be commandable. To let God's word and your submission to it help you take hold of the life that is truly life. Like I said, it's not easy, but it is possible to be good and rich. Now, you're going to have to intend to. You're not going to drift there. You're going to have to have a certain perspective of what real life is about. And you're going to have to submit to clear biblical teaching. And I hope that's what you're doing right now. So let me then, as your pastor, remind you of why generosity is so critical to the life that is truly life. Reason one, generosity is a demonstration of faith. I said last time, God doesn't view money as neutral. God views money as a rival. There are dark powers behind the money God claiming that wealth is the only certain path to a blessed future. But here's the reality. Wealth is uncertain. If you make gaining wealth your path to the life that is truly life, you've entered into a prison of constant anxiety. If you're going to live a generous life, you're going to have to answer this question. Can I really trust God? Is he worthy of my hope? And so, you see, when I take my tithes and my offerings and my acts of generosity and I give them to the things of God, here's what I'm doing. I'm demonstrating my faith in the faithfulness of God. I'm saying, God, I believe that if I live my life like a pipe, and not a pail, that you are going to constantly provide something to flow through that pipe. So I'm stepping out in faith that you're the source and that I can keep living this way. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9. You should not be sad when you give. And you should not give because you feel forced to give. God loves the person who gives happily. And God can give you more blessings than you need. Then you will always have plenty of everything, enough to give every good work. You see what he's saying? God will see to it that if you want to be a pipe instead of a pail, there's always something to flow through the pipe. And here's a strange thing about the relationship between faith and generosity. It takes faith for me to increase my generosity. But when I am generous... It increases my faith. Let me illustrate. Uh, Apologist Lee Strobel, you might know his story. He was an atheist, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune that literally studied his way into faith. He and his wife, Leslie, they're new Christians. They start going to church, and they meet a single mom at their church that they knew was having a hard time making ends meet. Now, Lee and Leslie don't have much themselves, but they just feel compelled. In fact, it was interesting. He said... I got convicted we should help her and give her $500. Leslie got convicted we should help her and give her $500. We got together and realized God gave us both the same conviction. And $500 was almost all they had in savings. 
And they didn't want to tell her it came from them, so he got a cashier's check. They put it in the mail, $500. She's going to get it on Monday. They go to church on Sunday, and they see her and ask how she's doing. She starts to cry. Says, not so good. My car's broken and brakes are out, and they said it's going to take $500 to fix it. Please pray for me. And so they prayed. And can you imagine the joy they felt on the way home thinking she's going to go to the mailbox tomorrow, and she's going to see that God is her provider. And so they stepped out in faith to be generous, and their generosity only increased their faith. You see, no one ever became poorer doing something that made their faith richer. This is why Jesus never stopped anybody from being generous. Because it's a demonstration of your faith. It's also a declaration of your hope. You see, generous people think long-term. I told you, they had a unique perspective. They live in the future tense. They, they use their wealth in the present world to invest in the coming age. Because their hope is set on the return of Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing. And so they're believing that if I am generous now, I am giving the world a taste of the future that is coming. Notice again what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9. God is the one who gives seed to the farmer and bread for food. He will give you all the seed you need and make it grow so that there will be a great harvest from your goodness. You see that? I am living in the hope that if I am generous in God's kingdom and I plant the seed, God is going to make sure there's a harvest. I am confident of this. And it, my hope is giving the world a taste of the world that is to come. And so every spring we have a renew offering. We give away over a million dollars that weekend to Christ-centered nonprofits that work with mothers about to have children, that work with uh, foster children that need to go to camp, that work with teenagers struggling in their high schools, that work with seniors. And uh, one of the things that we give to is a ministry called Academy Four. And we give them money, and a lot of you volunteer your time to mentor fourth graders in local elementary schools. Well, I got a note from a principal at one of those schools. It's, it's Western Hill School, and it's where our West Fort Worth campus serves in Academy 4. You see some of the pictures of our people there. And here's what Andrea Johnson, principal, wrote. The first time I saw the Academy 4 program in person, I walked into our cafeteria, and it was just full of people. And I teared up a bit. It's one thing to see it on Zoom, but it was another thing to feel a room where all these people had dedicated to come and to pour into my children. Research says it takes two to three years for a school to turn around. Last year alone, we had an overall 10-point increase in the school's rating, and that's because of people like you coming into our building and being there for our students. Can we celebrate that? In one year, a school increased their rating 10 points because generous people brought hope. 
You see, through generosity, we declare that it is how it is. It's not how it has to stay. Not if God is watering the seed. And so why does generosity matter? It's, it's a demonstration of faith. It's a declaration of hope. And most of all, perhaps, it's a determination to love. I love telling the story about the child psychologist or professor who believed you should never, ever punish a child. You should only love them. Well, he's widening his driveway. He's worked for hours with his trowel, smoothing out the cement. And a local kid ran right through it and ruined hours of work. He was so furious, he threw the trowel down. He chased the kid, put him over his lap, about to spank him. Someone said, Professor, I thought you said we should love the child and not punish him. He said, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. We are a culture that is excellent at loving in the abstract. We know all the phrases, right? And isn't it so easy just to hit like on social media? See, we're really good at loving humanity. It's loving actual people we need to get better at. And you're not loving actual people if there's never any actual sacrifice. Listen to words of the Apostle John. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? See, followers of Jesus understand that just because God put something in our hands doesn't mean he wants it to stay there. We're blessed to be a blessing. So we're always looking for ways that we can pour instead of store. And God has shown our church many concrete ways that we can be rich in good deeds through our church vision. So every fall, we have a harvest offering. We support missionaries all over the world and church plants all over our country. It takes a lot of money. Salvation's free, ministry's expensive. So we usually need between two and a half and three million dollars to do the things that we're trying to do. And because our church is generous every year, we have an overage. We go over what we ask for. So just so you'll know, we don't put that money if in a rainy day fund. We spend it every year that year for things consistent with our vision. So let me tell you what we did with the overage from our last harvest offering. We helped our church plants. So we spent $30,000 to send 50 church planting couples to a retreat. Not just couples from our church, but 50 couples. Let me tell you, we are loved in the church planting world. Uh, I showed you last week a slide from Community Church in Long Island. Had 42 baptisms, one of our church plants. Well, they were gifted a building from a dying church, but its parking lot was totally messed up. So we sent them $100,000 so they can fix their parking lot, so they can make it ADA uh, accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, I've mentioned we helped start Epiphany Church in Brooklyn. It's a wonderful church, about six years old. You know how hard it is to find space to meet in New York City? They found a space, but they didn't have the money to repurpose it. This is what it looked like when they found it, but it was the space they needed. So we sent them $75,000 from the Overage, and this is what it looks like now. They're averaging 750 a week and going to have to start a third service. Let me tell you, it's better. Our goal is to start 15 new churches in five years because you were so generous. We had $150,000 
to help start another church, an extra church. So last spring, Oasis City Church launched in Boise, Idaho. Okay, this church launched in the spring. They are averaging 550 every Sunday. They've already had 22 baptisms. They've got 10 more scheduled this month. They've already started seven rooted groups. It just gets better. So part of our vision is to help uh, people groups that don't have a Bible in their language. So we're working with some indigenous groups in North Africa. Well, the problem is uh, you get to these camps, there's no place for the translators to live, and it takes a long time to, to find the construction and work that out. So we just built a house. We spent about $100,000. We just built a house for the translators to live in while they work with the peoples God has sent them to. Thank you, church. Let's celebrate that. I am so grateful to get to preach for a church that wants to be generous. Galatians 6, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that is loving the nations and the generations in very concrete ways. As a faith community, we are intentionally trying to be good and rich. But what Jesus is leading us to do corporately, he will lead each of us to do individually. Here's what I mean. Every follower of Jesus is going to have unanticipated opportunities to pour into the life of somebody else and show them the love of Christ. It wasn't on the schedule. It wasn't on the calendar. It wasn't a light item in the family budget. It just appeared. And in that moment, you have the opportunity to take hold of the life that is truly life. A couple of years ago, I was having lunch with one of our elders. And when the waitress came up to take our order, he asked her name. I said, how are you doing? And in unexpected candor, she said, not very well. I think I might be pregnant. And if I am. I do not know how I'm going to make it. Toward the end of our meal, when she came to receive payment, I watched what he did. Now, he didn't tell me he was going to do this. In fact, he didn't even want me to see, but I did. I saw a $100 bill that he was hiding in his fist. And he took her hand, and he put it in her hand. And he said, just remember, God is going to be with you. And she teared up. It wasn't just the gift of money. It was the gift of hope. That's just who he is. In fact, we were walking to the car in the parking lot, and he said, how are you doing, Rick? And I said, not too well. <laughs> I said, I think Jamie might be pregnant, and if she is, I don't know how we're going to make it. <laughs> Let me ask you that day. Who got the greater blessing? You see, money cannot buy happiness, but generosity sure can bring joy. Because the life that is true to life is so much bigger matter than who accumulates the most matter. I've preached a lot of funerals. Never once has anybody cared what somebody was worth when they died. 
Because it's not stuff that makes your life truly rich. It's stories. And when we invest in stories that bless others, we're actually blessing ourselves. I told you, when Jesus leads, generosity follows. Here's the second truth, that when my, where my money leads, my heart follows. Do you want to live a good life? Grow a good heart. How do you grow a good heart? Put your heart in good places. Put your heart in places that are going to make stories. And how do I do that? It's easy. Jesus said, your heart will be where your treasure is. If you want a good heart, look for ways to pour instead of store. Don't leave behind a lot of stuff. Leave behind a lot of stories. That's what people do that have learned how to be good and rich. Let's pray. So God, thank you for the incredible blessing you've given us. There may not be a generation of Christians that have ever lived with more material wealth than you've given us. But with that wealth comes great temptation. So we pray, God, we pray for wisdom, for insight, and for will to take hold of life that is truly life. And I'm praying right now that every person listening to me is humble enough to receive whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to them and courageous enough to apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.